Lord God Almighty, we pray that you would attend the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us a proper weight to its admonitions and a proper glory to its beautiful uh, sight of Jesus. So God, help us to put off the old. Help us to put on the new. We pray it in Christ the Lord. Amen. Uh, John Newton is famous for his uh, sermon, that he, or this is hymn that he wrote, uh, called Amazing Grace. Many of you know that. Uh, but many of you don't know the rest of the story of Newton. Uh, in particular, many don't know the story of what Newton's life was like before he wrote that hymn, before he became a Christian. Newton uh, indulged in all that the world had to offer. Uh, alcohol and sex were his constant companions. Uh, he's known for having uh, uh, captained a slave ship until that amazing grace awakened him to the beauty uh, and pleasure of Christ. After that, Newton became a longtime pastor of two churches. And on the first Sunday of his second pastorate, December the 19th, 1779, uh, Newton preached to his new church from Ephesians 4.15, this notion of speaking the truth in love in order to set the vision for his new church. And here's a portion of what he said in that sermon. The Bible is the grand repository of the truths that will be the business and the pleasure of my life to set before you. It is the complete system of divine truth to which nothing can be added and from which nothing can be taken with impunity. Every attempt to disguise or soften any branch of this truth in order to accommodate it to the prevailing taste around us, either to avoid displeasure or to court the favor of our fellow mortals, must be seen as an affront to the majesty of God and an act of treachery to men. My conscience bears witness that I mean to speak the truth among you. Unquote. Now, why do you think Newton felt the need to say that to a church? You'd have thought they would have understood that. And in particular, why do you think he would have felt the need to have said that, uh, said that particular thing to that church on his very first Sunday? Why do you think he did that? Well, I think the answer is because Newton knew, as our text teaches us today, that there are those even inside the church that are still infected by our old natures which oppose the truth of Christ in favor of the spirit of man. And so he sought to make clear, as I do for you today, that we must strive to daily put off that infectious germ of sensuality that the world daily teaches us and still resides within us in favor of putting on the good life of holiness with Jesus and his people. So that's what we're going to see today. Put off the old man, put on the new man of righteousness. And we'll do that from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So we begin our Christmas series, which is just picking up where we've been, where we've been looking at for, through the book of Ephesians. We left off at verse 16. We'll look at 17 down to 24 as I read that aloud to us. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Pretty easy to see how we'll take a look at this passage. Uh, Two points this morning, putting off the old self, putting on the new. We'll spend most of our time, as the passage does, spending time thinking about putting off the old self. So let's think about that. Put off the old self. Put off the darkness, as it were. So for the first three chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul has labored to help this probably less than 100 member church in Ephesus, the great city of Ephesus, to understand that they as Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the economy of God's kingdom. He's been trying to help them understand that. To understand that in Christ, God was bringing heaven to earth, heaven and earth together through them, through the church that is made up of the nations. And he has told them, as we've seen, that by grace, through their faith in Christ, they have every spiritual blessing. Uh, They were known, they were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. He's told them that they were redeemed, that all of their sin was forgiven. They had an inheritance that couldn't be taken away, that they were made alive together because of the great love with which God had loved them. He's told them that they're one, one with God, one with each other. And so Paul then moves to the application portion of his letter to the Ephesians right there in chapter four, verse one. So when he says there, there's this transition. Therefore, Joey preached it last week. We walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, you're in Christ, you are empowered by His immeasurably great love, so act like it. That's what he's saying. And chapters 4-6 to show what it looks like to live in the grace of Christ as a people. Chapter 4, verses 1-16, to what we looked at last week, he talks about how God has given all kinds of resources to equip the church to work out what He has worked in them. In verse 17 to 24, what we'll see today, that's the preemptory to what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. And so the rest of this letter in Ephesians shows us practically what it looks like to live in Christ. So if you're just joining us uh, today for the first time, you have to know what we've been studying for the last few months. We have thought about the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy and the kindness of God. All of that comes first in this letter. And the rest of our time in Ephesians, from now chapter 4 to 6, is built off of those first three chapters. So if you disconnect Ephesians 1 to 3 from 4, 5, and 6, you not only miss the point of Ephesians, you miss Christianity as a whole, which is common to do, sadly. So with that in view, here in verses 17 to 24, as I said, this is the preemptory of the practicalities of the Christian life. He's getting us ready to kind of work into these practicalities. And then from verses 17 to 19, along with verse 22, we see what it means to live in the powerful love of Christ is to, verse 22, put off your old self. The word for self there is actually man. So put off your old man. We can think of the word name, the first man, Adam. That's what Adam means, man. The first, put off that old man, put on the new man, the second Adam, Christ. That's what he's going to do. And note that word there, as he says in verse 17. Actually, and let me back up, look at verse 17 real quick. Note that he's saying what he's about to say in the authority of the Lord. It's really important. And then he says, you must no longer, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles do. The word there is ethnos, same place we get our word nations. You must no longer walk as the nations do. And note the presence of that word must there. You must no longer. 
So this is no longer, this is not just a recommendation. This is not just a suggestion. Under the authority of the Lord, Paul says you must no longer walk or live as the nations do, as the rest of the world does. Because, verse 24, you're holy. Which means, to be holy means to be set apart from the rest of the world. We recall what Jesus taught, right? He said that he didn't want to take them out of the world, but he doesn't want them to be of the world. So as the church, we're supposed to be distinct, set apart, marked off from the rest of the world. And so this, listen though, then how Paul then goes on to describe the rest of the world, the nations that are not trusting in Christ and been born again and renewed. Look how he talks about them. And as he does, I want you guys to notice the kind of downward progression as he talks about them. Note there in verse 17, as he works down, the nations or the thinking of the world apart from Christ is futile in their thinking, futile in their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God, which, by the way, right there, that's a good synopsis of what he's saying the world is like. They're alienated from the life of God. God is life, light and love. And so since you don't have Christ, you don't have his light, life and love. And then he works down to say why the rest of the world is like this, why they're futile in their thinking, why they're darkened in their understanding. He goes on in verse 18 to say that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, listen, friends, I realize that in a a gathering where we're used to having people that are not Christians come and join with us. And we're so thankful for that. We're so glad that you're here. You're welcome here every time. But I I realize that if you're not a Christian, not trusting in Christ, you may have just heard Paul say that you're ignorant in the sense that you're intellectually stunted. That's not what Paul is saying. Or you may have thought Paul to say when he said that he's ignorant uh, as as someone that's not a Christian, you may have thought that he was saying that you don't have the basic facts of the gospel. That's also not what he's saying. Paul is saying something very specific here. What Paul is saying is that the ignorance that is within the unbelieving world is their inability to know or to see the beauty of a life with Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying that you don't see the beauty of a life with Christ as is evident by you're not willing to surrender all of your life to all of his lordship. And this is due, Paul says, to your hardness of heart. Which is to say your heart is cold to seeing Jesus as warm and beautiful. Warm and beautiful. Worthy worthy even of laying all of your life down to follow him, to know him and to enjoy him. And he explains more by saying that they, the nations, the unbelieving world, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy, or that is to say covetous, to practice every kind of impurity. Now I want you to note there in the text, where does the Lord place the culpability of these people? He places it on them. This is their choice. Not on God. Not on others. The culpability is on those that are not trusting Him. Therefore, friend, the penalty for sin, the penalty to to, to not know God and follow God is left to you, friend, to pay. Since you're the one, as God explains, to not submit your life to Him. And so God understands that you willingly choose to reject Christ as you grow more and more callous to the truth of Christ and more and more soft to living by your own senses, your own sensuality. And the more that you live by sensuality, the text teaches us, 
the more and more you will let loose to practice, it says, every kind of impurity. That's what we're learning. And friends, this is exactly what we're seeing in the world today, isn't it? From the sexual revolutionaries that, uh, that are saying that we should be able to be who we want, sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want, however we want, on to the unencumbered capitalists that are fine to bend most any rule of ethics in order to make a profit. On to the political revolutionaries on the left and the right that in the name of tolerance, love, or even righteousness believe that it is not only permissive but virtuous to slander people. And we can boil all of this kind of rhetoric down to that word in the text, sensuality. People rejecting life with God as is evidenced by their hearts wanting only to submit to the whims and wishes of their own desires instead of Jesus being the vision of the good life and submitting to Him. People's senses, we're learning, are their gods. Whatever it is they or you might be hungering for, that is the guide. That is understood to be the rule of law. You should just be able to do whatever you want. That's sensuality. And when that happens, when we reject the lordship of Christ, live by our senses, our desires, then the hearts of people get more and more hardened, which makes it easier then to choose any kind of impurity. And friends, this explains why we now legislate things that just a generation ago we thought were reprehensible. It explains it. Isn't it interesting? The Bible very much reads us more so than we read the Bible. It describes the world we live in. It describes us. The reality is that the supremacy of self, that germ of the supremacy of sensuality, is what we've been raised on. And he's saying this, by the way, to the, to the Ephesians, to the, because that's what they were raised in. It's what we have been raised in. It's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe and the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the education that we're part of, the books we read. No matter what, no matter who we are and what we believe, we are all infected by the sentiment of living by the dictates of our own desires. It's what we are taught here. It's increasingly what is legislated and advocated for. Just think about it, friends. One of the most countercultural things you can do in the world today is to re- repent of a particular desire. It's one of the most countercultural things you could do. And here's also what's important to recognize about that, according to the text here. Not only is it true that the world is largely alienated from the life of God and darkened to see the beauty of a life submitted to Christ and enlightened to see the beauty of life Christ submitted to our senses, the sinister part of all of that is that in all of these things, that lifestyle is deceitful. See that in verse 22. You see it there. That's what Paul goes on to say. Put off your old self, the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire. In other words, it's hard to see. If we were to slide down to the end of this, this letter in Ephesians chapter 6, you see the spiritual warfare where Satan is attacking us. And note that he will not attack us with clear frontal assaults. No, he will attack us subtly, deceitfully. He comes, we learn from 2 Corinthians 11, as an angel of light. He appears to be benign. I thought about this at Halloween. That you don't go out dressing like the devil. Go out dressed like this. This would be more often what he would look like. He convinces us that he's an angel of light. He convinces us and we convince ourselves that whatever wind of doctrine our society is teaching, it sort of makes sense. It seems right. It even seems loving, we tell ourselves. That's what we've been told. The evil one will even cloak the lies with Christianity and Bible verses. This is what Jesus would believe. This is 
what love is. This is what's good. It's the same game that he did in the garden when he convinced the old man, Adam and Eve, that God was holding out on them. That this fruit would help them to know good and evil. And then they would be like God. You see, friends, sins, sin, Satan, and society are very intentionally deceitful. They pose as good, but they have evil behind them. And you'll even feel good for a moment, only to have it peter out and have it not reflect the good life. And so the, go- the goal of the nations is, as, is just as Paul lays out here in this passage, to get us to reject submission to Christ and to get us instead to submit to our senses, to submit to however it is we feel, whatever we instinctively like. If Satan can get us there, he wins. That's what he's after. That's his game plan. And Paul says here, you've got to know that's how it all works. You've got to know that. You've got to put that kind of thinking off. You've got to put that way of loving and living off. You've got to put that off. Get rid of it. Put off that old man. That's who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. Remember, he's been rehearsing for three chapters. This is who you are. So don't live like that. Don't think like that. And so if we as Christians are going to put off living like the earth, that means we have to know the truth of what heaven is. If we don't, friends, if we're not clear about the truth, we'll go on believing lies and soon enough, friends, we'll find ourselves in places that we thought we'd never be. And a good way to begin is by simply, the good way of beginning to put off the old self is by simply agreeing with what Paul is saying here. And also matching that with what Jesus has said when he talked about that wide gate that leads to destruction. Do you remember that? How Jesus says that wide is the gate that leads to destruction and easy is the way and most will enter it, he said. So what we learn from that and what we learn from this passage uh, about darkness and its deceitfulness is that the world is not neutral in its messages. It's not neutral. We tend to think that they are, but they're not. The world is not neutral. No matter what American University says, no matter what uh, the Republican or the Democratic Party says, no matter what CNN or Fox News or MSNBC says, no matter what the New York Times bestseller is saying they are, are or not, no matter what maybe your, a celebrity friend is saying, maybe what your friend group on Twitter and Facebook is saying, they're not neutral. They have an agenda. And the likelihood that that agenda uniformly fits the truth and the beauty of Christ is zero. You just got to know that. You should be aware of that. Just by constantly recognizing That reality, we can keep a lot of darkness out of us and put some of that darkness that has gotten in on us out. So just a few words of uh, admonition to you. Be cautious to who you listen to. What they are saying. Evaluate it. Don't just take it in. Think about what you're reading. Take notice of what those people are presupposing. Take notice of what they assume to be true. Listen to what they're basing their counsel upon. And weigh it all out against the truth of God's Word. Which assumes, beloved, that you know the Scriptures. right? That you know the Word. See, if you're going to recognize darkness when it is in or around you, then you're going to have to lift up the light of Christ's Word in order to expose the darkened understanding and the futile thinking of the Word. Because remember, since they're darkened in their understanding, they don't know that they're teaching lies. So you've got to hold up the light to it. So Paul says there in verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. You see that? Look at verse 21. The truth is in Jesus. And we know from Jesus that this Bible that we're looking at is the word of Christ. 
It's His Word. Not some of the Word is His Word. All of it is His Word. The truth is in Jesus, verse 21 says, and this Word is the truth. It testifies to Him. That's what Jesus says of it Himself. And so you are going to have to regularly read and study and think about that Word, which is good for you. You're going to have to have people speak the truth to you in love. And also, Christian, might I encourage you to not just attend, but commit to joining a church that will do that. That will speak the totality of the truth to you in love. A church that will love you enough in public and in private to say things that are not popular in the world. That's what you need if you're going to be loved with the truth. A church that will call you to a lifestyle that may not be popular, that may not be sensual, but it is biblical, and therefore it's full of light. See, friends, if darkness is deceitful and pervasive, you've got to prioritize a church that will not feed you microwave meals that appeal to your palate. Instead, they will say things in humble confidence that you may not like because they love you. And they see you walking in a way that is not in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That's why Newton told his new church on that first day, if you soften or disguise the truth of the word in favor of the prevailing winds of doctrine around us, it is an affront to God and treachery to man. That's why he said that. Friends, there are well-known pastors that sell many books in Christian bookstores that are more interested in inspiring you than they are in loving you with the whole counsel of God's word. Be careful. They are appealing to your sensuality, whether they know it or not. Friends, my sons don't need me to just inspire them. They do need that. My sons don't need me to just inspire them, nor do they need me to just make them feel good. If they're going to grow up to be men of strength, men of uh, courage, men of integrity, men of Christ-likeness, men that make a difference for the glory of God in Christ Jesus, they're going to have to hear me and their mom tell them things they don't like, as well as the things they do like. They're going to have to hear that. We're going to have to be able to say to them, if we love them, the kinds of things that maybe they don't want to hear, like don't, don't read that or be attentive to that or be careful with those friends over there or whatever the case may be. Keep away from that. Stop playing video games. Whatever it is. right? Just be aware because we love them. And of course, there's going to be times when they won't like that. They won't like it when we say things. But my boys hopefully know that we love them. And because of that, they'll, by the grace of God, hopefully walk that good life. That's what it means to love them as a family, as a parent. And so if you find a church family then that will love you enough to speak the truth to you and those around you in love, if you find a church family that is willing to call you to put off walking like the rest of the world, listen, you found the grace of God on earth. You found heaven and earth coming together. Ephesians 1.10 happening. I'm sure not perfectly, but you're having it seen. And so Restoration Church, let me speak to you on behalf of the elders of this church. I want you to know that we love you. We don't do it well all the time. We don't do it right all the time. But that's our intention is to love you in the truth. I know that that would be uh, the case for Joey and Chris and Nick. And so because of that, we're going to do everything in our power to lovingly speak the truth to you. Like my sons, sometimes you're not going to want to hear it. Sometimes you're not going to like some of the things that we might say or lead you in. Sometimes we're going to be wrong. But it's not our desire to lead this church in sensuality because we love you and because we love Jesus. 
I'm not going to leave the church that way. That doesn't mean, of course, that we don't take into account how you might feel. But it does mean that we won't be ruled by my or your senses. We're going to be ruled by the good word of Christ and the spirit of it to try to lead a church that way. We're going to lead you by making decisions for this church family that will make the most people loved in the truth of Christ. Everything from the style of music that we choose to the way in which we preach to what we preach to the prayers we offer to the books we recommend to the counsel we give. We're going to try really hard to not infringe on our Christian freedom. And yet still guide you in the truth of Christ. So you need to be thinking about that when I come back a little more tan on the other side of my sabbatical in Ephesians chapter 5. And we begin to say things like Ephesians 5.3 where it calls us to put away sexual immorality. We're going to say things. We're going to have to say things out of love for you that is not popular in the world. When we look at Ephesians 5.18, we're going to talk about the dangers of alcohol. Not very popular. When we get to Ephesians 5.19, we're going to have to talk about music, which reminds me of a book I had to read in seminary about worship wars. You know, we are going to especially have to think about this when we get to Ephesians 5.22-23. We're going to have to look at the text and see that the Bible calls wives to submit and respect their husbands. Not exactly the most popular thing nowadays. And we'll also think, have to think about that. You'll have to remember that in Ephesians 5.25 when we tell you, husbands, that you're supposed to love your wives so much that you're supposed to sacrifice for them. Well, think about that. You need to be thinking about that when we get to Ephesians 6.4 when fathers are told to not provoke their kids to anger. And guys, that's just Ephesians. That's just Ephesians. That doesn't even mention things uh, like baptism and female pastorate and uh, all these other things, the exclusivity of Christ, church membership, or anything else that's about as popular as a 1997 Nokia flip phone, right? So we've got be, to be thinking about this stuff and know that we're coming from a place of love that's trying to weigh out the truth of the Word for you, to put off the world and put on what God's good Word teaches us. It may not be par- po- popular, but we have to speak the truth in love. And pray, guys, that, that not only that we would... The, the elders would lead well in this, but pray that you would have good conversations about this on your own. You would love and be courageous enough to say these things to yourselves. Because the reality is we need this call. Paul says to the church, we must no longer live as the rest of the world does. I assume that he says that because he knows it's still a problem. We need this call. We are children of the light, not sensual children of darkness. If we were being honest, we'd all have to agree that we all, in some ways, have value systems and lifestyles that are more like the world than they are like Jesus. I was really cut to the quick by something a pastor said recently where he said that if you're biblically convinced that something is true but emotionally not, it won't be long before you're no longer biblically believing that it's true. You just got to be careful to not go too far or too short. Our lives have to be different putting off loving and living like everyone else. Guys, didn't we see that as a church body from our time in Judges earlier this year? The supremacy of self and sensuality, what that gets us. And if you've forgotten that, let me encourage you to go back and listen to some of those sermons. There's a review sermon at the end of Judges. Just go back and, and read that. Think about that. Listen to that. But also, friends, we also have to remember, uh, Restoration Church, I'm speaking to you that the greatest barrier to the unbelieving world is not our sexual morality. It's not our belief in the miraculous. The greatest barrier to to the unbelieving world is us. Our lives look either so similar to the world or so hypocritical to Christ, they do not compel the world. 
may we be compelling. May we be compelling. Let's compel them by the way that we love and the way that we live. Knowing that this is the worthy way in which we put on the worthy love of Christ. And for you, friend, that are still among those that are not compelled to submit to Christ all of your life, to all of Christ, and remain to live as the rest of the world does, might I plead with you, friend, to come out of the darkness and come into the light of Christ. The taste you have for a better world is real. Its answer, though, is not in following everyone else in finding love. The answer for a better world is found in the love and the truth of Christ. He pictures the heavenly world. Might I appeal you to stop following yourself, stop following what the world says is right and true, and follow Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ to love and forgive you of that sin and train you in His righteousness. That's the good life. So if you want to do that, if you want to respond to this beautiful love of Christ, this hard love of Christ, talk to somebody. Talk to the neighbor that you came with that invited you. Talk to me. And if you want to know what it actually looks like to live a life of righteousness, live a life of hope, not like the rest of the world, then might I ask for about seven or eight more minutes when we look at the second half of this passage as I speak to my church about what it looks like to put on light. That's the second thing we see. Put off the old man, put off darkness, and put on the light. Put on the new man, put on the new self. In verse 20, after rehearsing for the Ephesians all the ways of the world, Paul abruptly says, I love this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. See it there in verse 20? It's not the way. You didn't learn to live this way. You didn't learn Christ this way. And did you notice something interesting about that verse in verse 20? He does not say, Paul does not say, that is not the way you learned about Christ. He says that is not the way you learned Christ Restoration Church, do you see how personal our faith is? We know Jesus Himself. Christianity is not about learning about Christ. Certainly, that includes it. We learn Christ Himself. It's learning Christ. Remember, the ignorance within the world is that they don't see Christ. Not as as we do. They may see Jesus, again, as an inspiration, as a sweet figure, or a good philosopher, but beloved... We see him, as Paul will go on to say, as our heavenly husband, as our king, as our Lord, as the truth, as everything that we have in our life that is good. It's him. They may see Jesus in that way. We see him as the Lord, as the king. All that we have, our redemption, our inheritance, our hopes, our love, it's not only from Jesus, it is Jesus himself. Isn't that beautiful? It's Jesus himself. That's what we get. We were given eyes to not only intellectually understand the gospel, we were given hearts to treasure the gospel and to treasure Christ and to love Him by inconveniencing ourselves. Paul says in Corinthians that we were given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the veil has been lifted and we can see Him and enjoy Him forever. Plenty of people saw Jesus. Plenty of people believed His miracles. But only a few saw His infinite worth and were willing to lay down their own lifestyles in order to gain Him and His kingdom. And that's what happened, beloved, when we were born again. The old man in us died and the new man came when we saw the glory of Christ. And so Paul says, walk like you're that new man, like you've been born again. Put off the old man. Put on the new man that is trained in the love of Christ. Verse 23, be renewed by the spirit of your minds. 
I want you to catch something about that verse. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of mind. Notice our lives are not just external obedience. We're going to be talking a lot about external obedience in 4, 5, and 6. But notice where he says to be changed. In the spirit of your minds. It flows, it flows from internal renewal. Verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, if you have been born again, then you need to act like you've been born again. And that means, in part, that for those of you that are haunted by bad choices or sinful experiences, for those of you that have constantly rehearsed all of your failures, for those of you that are readily aware of how small and insignificant you might feel, for those of you that are feeling hopeless, without a future, without that perfect family, listen, put off defining yourself in those old ways. And put on defining yourself how Christ defines you. Think about that. Put off defining yourself in the old ways. Put on the new self. You are who Jesus says you are. No matter what others may say, no matter what you may say to yourself, you are who Jesus says you are. All those truths in Ephesians 1-3, to they are true of you. Put that on. Learn to live that way. Put it on every day. Remind yourself and put it up on a mirror every day and rehearse it. That's who you are. That's who you are. And for those of you that are freshly aware of all the ways that you do live and think like the rest of the world, repent of those lines of thinking and living and loving. Turn away from them. That's how you begin to put them off. You go to God in prayer and you ask Him to forgive you. You plead the blood of Christ who died for your sin, raised for your sin. You plead that blood and know that He will forgive you. Just as Joey prayed. Put on the new self by walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So it's not enough to just repent and say to God that you're sorry, but you resign yourself to live in a new way. Put on, as we've seen in verse 3, put on humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Pursue oneness with your spouse, with your children, with fellow Christians. Seek to serve and not just be served. And remember again, this is the good life. I didn't say that it's the easy life. I said it's the good life. Remember Jesus said of the narrow way that it's hard and only a few will get there. And remember this call to put on the new man is not merely individual. Remember Paul is writing to a church, to a local church. He's not only calling us as individuals into this new man, he's calling us as a church to illustrate this new man. And as we do this, we illustrate what heaven on earth can look like when we recall how we learned Christ. We speak truth to one another. And as that happens, as it has so many times in the life of this church, we picture the glory of Christ, heaven and earth coming together, the beauty of Jesus. That's why I think Francis Schaeffer said of a church that does this, that a church that does that, that speaks the truth and love to one another, walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Francis Schaeffer said, that's the greatest apologetic. Let me leave you with a warning. One warning. Learning how to fall out of love with the world and learning how to fall more in love with Christ goes like any relationship. It might begin with some flash, but oftentimes it settles into a slow but steady climb towards new heights. I love my wife more today than I did when I first met her. But there have been plenty of ho-hum days in between these last 16 years. Plenty of days in which I got it wrong. Plenty of days I took sort of three steps back and had to take two steps forward and eventually get five steps forward. 
That's what love looks like when you're putting off the bad and learning how to put on the good. It's full of truth. It's full of patience. It's full of repentance. It's full of time. It's full of the truth and love, speaking that day after day and trying to live in light of it. And so don't get discouraged if you're still loving and living like the world, maybe this time next week. As a, as a pastor, I'm readily aware, I used to didn't know this as a pastor, but I'm readily aware of the fact that one sermon won't fix everything. Oh, if it only were that easy. <laughs> what counts, beloved, is your trajectory. What's that look like? Evaluate your life of the past year, two or three. How's it going? How's your love for Christ? Putting off that old, putting on that new. How are your loves being formed? How are they being formed by? What does it look like? Is Jesus, here's a good question, is Jesus becoming more precious to you? When you, when you look back maybe a year, two or three ago, if He is, keep going. Be encouraged. Know that the Father sees you and loves you. There's, a, there's more grace in Him than there is sin in you. But if He's not, He's not more precious to you. And if your life and your loves look about the same as they did two or three years ago, my guess is repentance needs to happen somewhere. And so invite someone into that that you love and trust. And it will be gentle and humble and loving to you. Invite a brother or sister who you know and love and trust to speak the truth to you in love. Seek correction. And then live in the grace and the mercy of Christ. And listen, here's a key part. Don't rehearse all the things that you need to do. Rehearse the unsearchable riches of Christ. That will be the fuel that you need. And so we began with a quote from Newton. Let me leave you with a quote from Newton. Speaking of the ways that he still needs to put off the love of the world, he says, though my disease is grievous, it is not desperate. I have a gracious and infallible physician. And that's our hope to live in the new man. The physician is not ourselves. The physician is not your pastors. The physician is not Restoration Church. The physician is Jesus. He's the one we learned. He's the one that's beautiful. He's the one that is right and true. And as we rehearse those truths that He teaches us and remember that they are in Him, not just about Him, but in Him, we rehearse that. We grow up in His love. And we enjoy Him forever until we get home in heaven and get to see Him face to face and know that that world is a much better than this one as He redeems this one in His second coming. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we admit we do love the world in so many ways. But how good it is to know that there is indeed more grace in You than there is sin in us. And so God, as we confess these sins to You, we pray that we would look, we would gaze, we would see the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And that we learn to live like Him and believe and even be willing to suffer if we have to. To live for Him and His glory. Not only individually, but as a people. God, may we put off the old self. Put on the new self that You have given us. Thank You for such a good gift. And I pray for those that do not currently trust You. May they come to trust You and see Christ not only as a way, but the way to life, liberty, and happiness forever and ever. Amen.